that we can learn from Second Chronicles and First Chronicles too. But also the Psalms. So, Psalm 25. This is the Word of God. Uh, it was written by David. He was the human hand. But uh, the Holy Spirit uh, speaks through the scriptural authors in such a way that it is God who is speaking just as much as it is David. And because God is the one who speaks when Scripture is read, uh, we can be assured that God's Word is infallible. Uh, it doesn't have mistakes in it. It doesn't have errors in it. If it were just a mere man who had written this, it would be liable to have errors in it. But uh, it is God who wrote this, ultimately. And so it is, uh, we can be assured that it is true, it is what we need to hear, uh, and it is what we need for life and godliness. So give it your reverent attention as I read to you the word of God, Psalm 25. A Psalm of David. To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust. In thee I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for thee will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy compassion and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to thy loving kindness, remember thou me. For thy goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. And teaches he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for thee. 
Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Amen. Amen. Let's pray to the Lord. O Lord, we are a needy people. Lord, we are sinners saved by grace. Uh, But Lord, our sin still afflicts us, the old man. And Lord, the old man is the one who would cause us to not pay attention, not pay careful attention, who would cause us to repudiate uh, and refuse to submit in some area that you are speaking to us in, in this psalm. Lord, the old man is the one who would choose not to believe that this is actually you speaking. And Lord, the old man's in each one of us. Would you forbid that he, it, whatever we call it, would would interrupt your ability to minister to us through the preaching of your word? Jesus, you need to be our preacher. We don't need to hear from Mark O'Neill. We need to hear from you. You've promised to inhabit the preaching, the uh, legitimate preaching of lawfully ordained men as they preach on, uh, in your worship. Would you please speak afresh to each one of us? We have different needs here. We have different struggles. Would you please speak to each one at our point of need? And would you please honor yourself as you do so? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, all kids up here looking at me. All right, children, um, got a question for you. <clears throat> I know probably you children have toys at home. Uh, most, most children do, younger children anyway. Um, Caroline, you've gotten so big. <laughs> You're no longer a child. Anyway, uh, you children, you have all probably been given a toy before, but a toy that had a bunch of parts in the toy and that had not yet been put together. Have you received a toy like that before? Where it came and it came maybe in a box or package wrapped or whatever, but it had a bunch of, bunch of pieces in it that had to be assembled. That means put together. Have you ever received a toy like that? Well, usually if you, if you haven't, you probably will at some point, and you get these pieces to the toy, and almost always, in fact always, you will find in the toy packaging instructions on how to put the toy together. Now, you may be able to read those instructions and put the toy together yourself, or you may have to get mom or dad to do that, because you might not be able to read all the words. Uh, But somebody needs the instructions so that you know how to put this toy together so that the toy works properly and so that you can enjoy the toy. Well, we find in the Bible, kids, we find instructions for different things. Uh, We find instructions for how to be made right with God. Uh, The way a person, and uh, we are all sinners, and we all are alienated from God from birth, uh, and the only way that we can be made right with God is to trust in Jesus Christ alone to save us. And the Bible gives us instructions as to how the need to do that and how to do that. 
Um, the Bible gives us other instructions as well, how to live a life that's fulfilling and abundant by following God's law and doing what God tells us to do in the instructions. They're called the Ten Commandments, actually. They, they summarize the instructions, really, the whole Bible. But there are also instructions, when we're reading them right here, actually, in Psalm 25, about how and uh, about what to pray. Psalm 25 that we're looking at this morning is an instruction manual on prayer, on how to pray. Now, some of this is going to be familiar to many of you, most of you probably, maybe all of you. But we can all, including you children, but also including you adults, we can all learn more about how to pray effectively to a God who wants to answer our prayers, if we're Christians. Uh, but we can learn a lot from this passage about praying and about being better prayers. So I want you all, doesn't matter what I want, God wants you all to pay attention and to learn and grow in your abilities to pray in a way that honors God and that also uh, brings uh, good to you and to others you may be praying for. There are two main headings to this sermon. Uh, the first point, if you will, uh, that we're going to look at is how to pray when you come before the Lord in prayer. Just what I said you were going to hear. That's what you're going to hear. And secondly, we're going to look at what to pray for when you come before the Lord in prayer. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, this what to pray for. There are many other things that are not mentioned, but it's a representative list of things to pray for uh, when you come before the Lord. And so we'll get to that in the second point. But the first uh, point is how to pray when you come before the Lord in prayer. Several points that we're going to look at. And we're going to jump around. We're going to be mostly in Psalm 25. So if you've got your Bible, you need to have it open. Uh, I'm going to, sometimes I'm going to just reference the verse and I'm not going to read it each time. But there are other verses that I'm going to read. So it's going to kind of depend. But I want you to know that what I'm preaching here is from the scriptures themselves. So uh, be attentive as I call out the names of the, the verse numbers so that you can look uh, if you uh, need to read along with me or read it afterwards. So, how to pray. Well, first, and this comes really from verse 1, but it also uh, comes even more fully in verses 12 and verse 14, we are taught that we are to pray, uh, we are to approach God in prayer with holy reverence, or the word that the psalmist uses, or the New American uh, Standard translates, fear. We need to approach the Lord with a fear of the Lord in our hearts. We are told in verse 1 that we are to approach God with a worshipful heart, a heart that is lifted up, that we lift up our, our soul to the Lord. A soul and heart are essentially uh, synonymous in meaning, uh, scripturally speaking. And we are to lift ourselves up. That rep represents a, a heart of worship, that, that recognizes that God is great and that we are not and that we are coming before him uh, in need uh, of his aid, or in need of his blessing. And so we are to approach God uh, with humility, uh, recognizing that he is this God of the Bible, who is the great God that the Bible uh, represents him as. And we are to, the, the, the heart that is 
properly attuned to who God is and who we are, uh, unlike Him, is a heart that fears Him. By fear here, we don't mean paralyzing fear, um, although there, there's a time and a place, even for the believer, to be have paralyzing fear of God. Uh, but that's not the norm, I would say, for the believer. It should be the only way the unbeliever should fear God. The unbeliever should be terrified. The problem is most unbelievers are not. They think that God likes them uh, because they like themselves, and that's really what it amounts to. Uh, but they should be they should be terrified of God because God is a blindingly holy God who is a just God who must punish all sin. And if they don't have Jesus as their Savior, they're going to receive the punishment that their sins deserve, which is eternal damnation in hell. That's what we all deserve here. Every last man, woman, and child in the world deserves and has deserved down through the ages with the exception, of course, of Jesus, who was fully man but was unlike us, was, was not uh, sinful. But all the rest of us are. We all deserve God's wrath. We all should, without Christ, should be terrified of meeting God. Sadly, again, most unbelievers won't experience that terror until they actually do meet God, and then it will be too late. But we as believers who have Christ as our Savior and as our King, we do need to come to the Lord with reverential fear. We need to understand that He is worthy of awe, and um, reverence, that, that we should be uh, greatly humbled as we approach Him. Now, yes, we need to keep in mind that we are His children and He is our Father, and we do have that uh, filial relationship with God, and, and we, we can approach God as a loving Father, but we need to keep its attention. It's not attention. It's, we need to keep both things in mind, that we have God as our Father, but also God is a consuming fire, that same God who is our Father. And we need to approach Him in prayer with both those things in mind, I would suggest. Both that He loves us as His child, but also that He is a consuming fire representative of His blinding moral purity. And we should be in awe of Him. He is great. We are mere dust. We are animated dust. That's all we are. Now, yes, we're loved, but we need not, we must not forget that we are sinful dust. And God is the maker of all, the one who holds the entire cosmos in his hand and created it out of nothing. So we have to approach God with reverence and reverential fear in our hearts. Um, even as his child, we need to remember that, even though uh, uh, God is our Father and therefore loves us, and we can keep that in mind as well. So let me ask you, and I'm going to do this several times, so... Do you approach God in prayer that way? Do you approach God with reverence? Or do you speak with Him some other way? Sadly, uh, and I've had people say, you know, that we need to approach God like He's our buddy. Uh, I never fell into that trap. But I had friends who said, you, need to, you know, God is, He's your bud. And God is a friend to the believer, but he's not our bud. You don't treat him cavalierly and casually uh, and talk to him like you're talking to, uh, you know, 
the guy you play basketball with or your girlfriend next door. That's not how we talk to God. Do you approach God reverently when you approach him? You need to. Secondly, how to pray. We are to pray with a humble awareness of who and what God is like in, in opposition to who and what we are like. We need to remember of the great moral chasm between us and God. And we need to remember who this, what this God that we are talking to is like, that what the Bible says about him. The God that we, uh, and, and by the way, the verses that I'm looking at here, uh, verse 8, uh, he says, Good and upright is Yahweh, is the Lord, the triune God. God is good is, a, is a, really a synonym for holy or righteous. Those are all rough synonyms, all of them. This is pointing to God's moral purity. God is upright. He is pure. He is, there is no evil in him. He, it's impossible for him to do wrong. And we have to keep that in mind as we approach him, realizing that sometimes he's going to say no to our prayers, and he's not wrong in saying no to our prayers when he says no. We can't ever say, you done me wrong by not saying yes to that prayer, God. You can never say that. We need to remember that he is holy, he is upright, he is good. And we need to... And we need to remember his other qualities, but in particular, his, his moral purity. And we need to remember what we are like, which is unlike him. We are all sinners. Yes, if we're Christians, saved by his grace and loved, but we are still sinners. Uh, verse 7, verse 11, and verse 18 all make this point. Uh, David says, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. In verse 7, uh, down in verse 11, he says, Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And then down in verse 18, he says, um, Forgive all my sins. He keeps being reminded as he's praying of his sinfulness. And of God's willing to for- willingness to forgive him of his sins. But he doesn't forget how holy God is, and that he is not like that. We need, to re- we need to approach God similarly. Do you think on God's holiness and how it compares to your relative lack of it, even if you're a godly, mature Christian? Do you approach God with those thoughts in mind? You probably should. Regularly, if not every time. We need to pray also with a constant and intense awareness of God's gracious character. Uh, in verse 6 and 10, uh, we read of God's loving kindness. Remember, O Lord, thy compassion and thy loving kindness says. There it's in the plural. And then again down in verse uh, 10, uh, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. That love, I, many of you heard this, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard this from me. That word should probably be better translated covenant love or covenant faithfulness or covenant loyalty. It has to do with the covenant. Um, and it's a very pregnant term and it points to the, uh, the, the, the kindness and the love that flows t- from God to the believer through the covenant and the covenant mediator, Jesus. And we need to remember as we approach him, re- recognizing our sin, 
that God is a God who forgives sinners who confess their sins and turn from them. It says it in verse 11. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. He says, for thy name's sake. Notice that. For thy name's sake, O Lord. Because of your name, for the glory of your name, because you've said you would pardon sinners, would you please pardon me? And also down in verse 18, similarly, he says, uh, again, forgive my sins. The Lord does forgive his sin, uh, our sins, the sins of believers. Um, he is a God who is filled with uh, grace that flows through the covenant and the mediator of that covenant, Jesus, but only through him. There is not salvation by Allah. There is not salvation by Sun Young Moon. I don't even know if he's alive. Is he still alive? Anybody know? Anyway, make any difference. Um, the David Koreshes, he's dead. Uh, but these Messiah figures, they're all fake Messiahs. They're all false Christs. Joseph Smith, the Mormon leader, he was a pervert as well as a shyster. Thousands, millions of people are going to hell because of him. There's only one Savior. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. The biblical Jesus, not the fake Jesuses that people have invented. And so we need to, but, but there is grace, and there is infinite grace coming through His atoning work to those who will put their trust in Him and Him alone. We need to remember that as we approach God in prayer. That I have, I'm clothed in Christ and His righteousness and His, His, He's paid for my sins as I come to God. He, God, I'm, God is graciously disposed to me as I approach Him now. Also, you and I need to pray to the Lord with dependent faith. Faith that is trusting actively in Jesus, first of all, for our ability to come before God in the first place. And secondly, that's trusting that God uh, is desirous of answering and can answer my prayers. Perhaps with a no, but also certainly with a yes, if he wishes to do so, and is for my good and his, his glory. Again, we have to understand and remember that, that, that uh, God is not only a covenant-making God, but he is a covenant-keeping God. And again, the text points to it um, uh, in verse... Uh, where am I here? Verse 14. The secret or the counsel, that word can be translated both ways. Uh, the secret of the counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. You see, God will see that we are, uh, we remain in covenant with him. He, he continues to uphold the believer and we need to trust <clears throat> that he will continue to uphold us as we approach him and, and we need to, and we need to trust that he, because he has entered into this covenant of grace with us through Christ, that, that we are, uh, he enjoys blessing us and will bless us. And we can trust him to do that, even if it's not quite in the way that we prayed about, because sometimes it's not. We need to, um, we need to have confidence that the Lord will hear and answer us, um, in a prayer, in a manner that will glorify him and that will be for our best. He says in verse 3, Indeed, none of those who wait 
for thee, or hope in thee, that can also be translated, will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without, without cause, they will be ashamed. But he's saying those who hope in thee <coughs> will not be ashamed. Excuse me. You, you're, you're not misplacing your trust if you're trusting in the Lord as you pray to Him. You're not going to be ashamed. You're not going to be you're not going to be shown to be a fool by doing that. You see. And he, the psalmist, by the way, uh, I just read verse three there. Back in uh, the previous verse, in verse two, uh, the psalmist had expressed some anxiety in the previous verse about the possible ramifications of a refusal by God to come to his aid. He said in verse 2, Oh my God, I trust in thee. But then he says, Do not let me be ashamed. In other words, don't prove me wrong uh, by putting my having put my trust in you. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. But then in verse 3, um, he, uh, he reminds himself of who God is and his initial anxiety expressed in verse 2 seems to pass over into confidence. He says, after, do not let me be ashamed, do not let my enemies exalt over me, he says, indeed, oh wait a minute. He's like, oh wait a minute, no, that's not going to happen. Indeed, none of those who wait for thee will be ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed, because I'm trusting in the Lord. We need to have confidence in the Lord. Do you approach the Lord expectantly in your praying? It's hard to, folks, for many of us. Very few of I've just not I've not met too many people who have the gift of faith. Some some people do, I don't. I have faith, I just don't have the gift of faith. I'm pretty sure of that. Faith doesn't always come easy to me, and I imagine for a fair number of you that's true as well. But we need to talk to ourselves and say, Trust God, Mark. Believe what you're praying right now, that God is hearing and that He can answer this and make this happen. Or, or do something better than what you're praying for instead. In addition to dependent faith and reverence, fear, uh, reverential fear and humility in our hearts and remembering God's gracious character, um, we need to be persistent in our praying. Uh, the psalmist says and makes this point in verse 15. He says, My eyes are continually toward the Lord. He's speaking here of his praying. I, he's, 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 he's continually prayerful. He's continually lifting his prayers up uh, to the Lord and, uh, and, and doesn't give up in his uh, uh, looking to the Lord with his, the eyes of his heart for, uh, for his confidence and for his well-being. We're to be persistent in our praying. Uh, Jesus spoke in several places, I'll just read one of them, of uh, the importance of persistence that uh, in, uh, in prayer. In, uh, in Psalm 18, there's the uh, widow uh, in the unrighteous judge. Um, that doesn't mean God is unrighteous, by the way, but that's just the comparison that was made there. But we'll read Luke 11, verses 5 through 10, that speaks of the importance of persistence in praying. Luke uh, chapter 11, verse 5, And he, this is Jesus, said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend, and shall go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he, the friend, shall answer and say, Do not bother me. 
The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and him who knocks, it shall be opened. And notice, it's in the context there of persistence. That promise is in the context of persistence in praying. He may not ask on the first or second at, try, if you will. He may, he may not answer, rather, on the first or second time that you pray a certain prayer. And we need to wait not only, uh, not, pray not only persistently, but we need to wait patiently. We need to wait patiently. We see this in verse, verses 5 and 21, where he says, For thee I wait all the day, verse 5, and then in verse 21, For I wait for thee. We need to wait on the Lord to answer in his time. Most of the time, I find God's timing is not my timing when I pray. I usually want my answer to prayer right as I'm praying for it. Don't you? Yeah. Seldom does the prayer get answered right then. You know? Um, God, God's timing is not always and is really probably seldom our timing. The Lord wants us to wait sometimes. It stretches the faith muscle when you have to wait for an answer. You gotta keep trusting. You gotta keep digging up, finding more trust and asking for more trust. And delay in answer helps build that trust. And the psalmist had to wait for the Lord, implying that he waited with an attitude of patience and expectancy that the Lord would answer. Again, not always with a yes, but that he would answer. And he uh, his waiting also implied a recognition that it was up to God as to how and when the Lord would respond to the plea that he was lifting up. Do you pray with patience? Do you need a little more patience than perhaps you've exhibited recently? Do you need a little more persistence in your praying? Have you given up on some prayers that perhaps you should be resuming to pray for. You see, we need to pray in these ways because the Lord says, this is how to talk to me. He's giving us instructions right here. Secondly, not only are we taught here in this psalm how to pray when we come before the Lord, but we are given a representative sampling at least of what to pray for when we come before the Lord in prayer. The psalmist, David, here, um, he prays quite a bit, and you heard it as I read the psalm to you, for protection and deliverance from various enemies that were his. Um, You may have noticed that the psalms rarely ever, um, and when they do, they only do it, I think, the only time they do it is in the superscription, which is that thing that usually comes... Uh, before a psalm starts that was usually added some uh, uh, time after the psalm was written by the original psalmist. They're called superscriptions. Uh, in this psalm, the superscription is a psalm of David. 
Um, it, David wrote the psalm probably, but it wasn't. He probably didn't write of David at the top of his psalm. He probably just wrote the psalm, and somebody a few generations later knew that David wrote it. Wrote it on there. At any rate, uh, in the body of the psalms, uh, you rarely, if ever, specifically are find the enemy of David, or if it's some other psalmist, identified by name. Um, this is, like I say, almost always it's going to be in the superscription, uh, which may or some of those are divinely inspired, some of them probably are not. Uh, but most of them are probably credible in terms of what they teach us about the psalms, uh, the background of the psalm. Anyway, the fact that names aren't named of the psalmist's enemies is almost certainly intentional on the part of the divine author. The Holy Spirit didn't want to put in specific names because then it would lose some of its applicability to future generations. Because you will say, well, well, David's talking about Doag. Now, Doag is mentioned in one superscription in one of the Psalms, but it's not mentioned in the body of the Psalm. You know, I was like, I'm, Doag's not my enemy. This doesn't apply to me. He, so he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He, he, the, the enemies are unnamed almost always in the body of the Psalm. And this vagueness is done, obviously, I think, so that we can put our enemies' names in there and go apply it to our life. Now, you may think, I don't have any enemies, or very few. I personally, I can think of a couple people. Uh, but I'm, they're, I'm not their enemy, but they're my enemy, if you know what I mean. That, you know, for whatever reason, I'm not going there. Um, but we all have enemies, whether you believe it or not. You have an enemy. You have a couple enemies, for sure. Actually, you have a lot of enemies. There we go. Unbelievers, folks, are children of Satan. We were once children of Satan, all of us. We were conceived that way. We were all children of the devil. Children of the devil work for the devil. Now, most of them don't know that unless they belong to the church of Satan. Uh, but most of them don't know that they work for the devil, but they do. And unbelievers, there are some unbelievers out there in our own community, in fact, who would do you harm if they had the opportunity to simply because Jesus is in you. There are people, and, and you know, churches are starting to get people coming in and shooting at people. That's not becoming less and less uncommon. And those people are targeting Christians. And you go to other places in the world, and Christians are, I just read this uh, yesterday, or it was the day before, Christians are the number one target of uh, terroristic activity in the world. They're the number one persecuted religious group in the world. And it may well come here, the United States. Unbelievers who would want to do you harm are your enemies. You may not know who they are, but they're out there. We ought to be praying, Lord, protect me from those and protect my family from those and protect my church family from those folks and other Christians, please. But of course you have spiritual enemies that you can't see roaming around. Certain uh, Satan's uh, demons. And they are sworn to kill you. 
They, they want to do every. They can't kill you, I don't think. No, not a believer. Uh, but they, they want to. They want to destroy you. They want to do everything they can to destroy you. They hate you and me. They're your enemies. You've got enemies. So we need to pray, Lord, deliver me from my enemies, spiritual or human or whatever. And by the way, there's an enemy within too, and that's the old man. I mentioned him earlier. Pray for that. Pray that God would deliver you from your enemies without and within in accordance with this psalm. Also, pray for, and this is what the psalmist spends a lot of time praying for, guidance and instruction in the way of godliness. Look at verse 4. He prays there that God would make him know his ways. Verse 4, make me know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. David's praying for the Lord. Lord, show me your will. Show me your will for me. Now, I would suggest David is probably not praying for extra scriptural or extra biblical revelation at this point in time regarding some course of action that he needs, like that, Lord, would you please give me a voice from heaven or something like that. Now, it could be that he's asking for that because this time period, there were prophets that God did speak to and David was actually held the office of a prophet as well as the office of a king. Uh, and so they may, he could have, I, I suppose, been praying here for special revelation, but I don't think he was. Um, I think it's much more likely that he was praying uh, now not for special revelation that he was given by God at, at times, but um, for for non uh, non special revelation. Anyway, the point is nowadays that option of special revelation is not open to us. The canon is closed. God, the Holy Spirit, and there's biblical evidence of this that uh, is, no longer, is no longer giving the gift of prophecy in tongues, and tongues was just prophecy in another language. Those gifts have ceased. Uh, and there's biblical warrant for believing that they have ceased. God is no longer... He said everything he needs to say. It's found right here. So it's not option for us to ask, like it was for David, Lord, would you please actually speak to me? David was probably praying, although he could have done that. He was probably not doing that, but praying rather for, Lord, would you please give me a more thorough understanding of what you already have revealed to me in your, in your law and in, in, in previous revelation and how I should apply this to my life. I think that's what David was doing here when he said, make me know thy ways, teach me thy paths. Lord, just help me to know how to apply what you've already told me in your word. And that's exactly how you and I need to pray, folks. When it comes to certain specific situations that we might face. We don't need to pray for a voice from heaven. We don't need to pray for a fleecing, you know, uh, uh, wet lamb's wool or something like that in the morning because of the dew or lack thereof. That's not how you and I should be praying for answers to prayer. No, we should be saying, Lord... Uh, you know, would you please lead me and guide me as I seek to do your will? And we can talk about that on some other occasion about more specifics about how to do that. Actually, I will, I'll just say it real quickly. You know, you, you, you take biblical data that you know applies to your situation that you're praying about. You say, okay, what are the verses that apply? There are, you know, maybe uh, several uh, dozen verses perhaps. 
You look at all those verses, you say, okay, uh, I, 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 I can't pray for these things because they're outside of God's will. He's already said they're outside of his will. I can't pray for, you know, um, you know, to be able to rob a bank successfully. I can't pray for that. That was a stupid illustration. But at any rate, you get the point. <laughs> we, you know, we, we got to pray inside the bounds of God's revealed will. And we need to pray in faith, Lord, would you please lead me and direct me and show me what I should do and help me to... And then, if God, after you've uh, considered what the scriptures say and you've prayed uh, and you still don't have a sense of what you should do, you ask yourself, well, what do you want to do? What would I prefer? Well, I'd prefer this. And then since you're trusting the Lord and this is one of the options, you have, let's say you have three different options and... Number three is one of the options, and you'd kind of prefer three over one and two. Is you just pursue that option, and then if the Lord's like, no, 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 I want you to do one, well, He'll close the door. Providentially, He'll close the door, and you're like, oh, I guess He wanted me in one or two, rather than three. But at the time when you chose three, you did it in good conscience, you did it uh, in conformity with the revealed will of God, and you did it in faith. And that's, I think, how God leads and answers prayers through providential dealings with us um, and through the scriptures. At any rate, that was a, wasn't intended, but you got it anyway. Um, but no, we are to pray and ask, Lord, would you please guide me? Would you please help me to know how to specifically apply and properly apply your scriptures to my specific situation? So, for example, the scripture tells us, trust the Lord with all your heart. Lord, what areas do I need to trust you with all my heart in? What are some areas that I need to trust you? That would be God leading you into some specific area of trust that you maybe hadn't thought about. Or, God, you said that I'm to do, good, I'm to do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith, in Galatians chapter 6. You pray, Lord, okay, you tell me to do good, uh, especially to believers. Uh, who should I do good to? And how? Okay, I just, oh, I just thought of this person. This person has a need, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. And then you go off and you do it. And that's, I think, the leading, providential leading of God's Spirit as we pray for it and so on. Also, in uh, Matthew uh, you know, uh, 7.3, the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said that we're to get the log out of our own eye before we try to get the log, the speck out of our brother's eye. Lord, what's my log? Where's my log, Lord? I have a log. What is it? so that I can perhaps help my brother later, because he's got a speck in his eye. But I need to get the log out of my own first. What is it? Things like that. You see what I'm saying? You're applying scriptural principles to specific situations in your own life. And I think that's what David was doing, I suspect, and that's what we must do. And that's what we must pray uh, to the Lord for. And uh, David not only prays for a better understanding of God's will, but he also prays in verse 5, uh, for assistance to carry that will out. So he says in verse 4, Make known to me the, uh, thy ways, O Lord, teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. Notice, lead me. Pull me along, Lord. I think implied there is uh, he understands that uh, he is incapable of following the path that the Lord has uh, has called him to walk on if the Lord doesn't lead him down that path. I need your help leading. You need to lead me, Lord. You don't need to be on the sidelines. You need to be out front. And we need to 
ask the Lord to do that. Solomon certainly understood the need for the the enabling of God's Spirit uh, if a person is to obey Him. Uh, over in First Kings chapter eight, Solomon says this. First Kings chapter eight, verses fifty-seven and fifty-eight. He's praying. The Lord, he says, is he praying? I'm not sure if he's praying there. Yes, I think he's praying there. Yes, he's praying. And he says in verse uh, fifty-seven, "May the Lord our God be with us." as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. He's praying collectively for Israel as a whole. He says, May the Lord not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself. What? To walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. Notice, he asked that the Lord would help Israel, the Israelites and, and himself to in, uh, to incline his heart to walk with him. God, folks, needs to incline our hearts to be obedient. Otherwise, we don't want to be obedient. We need divine push in our hearts to incline us to be obedient. And we need to ask the Lord, would you please incline my heart? Because I know I should want this, but I don't right now, whatever this is. And we learn in verses 12 and 14 that it is the God-fearing person whom God will instruct in his way and will show his will to and will lead. Verse 12 makes that point. He says, uh, Who is the man who fears the Lord? The man who fears the Lord, he says, He will instruct him. He, God, will instruct him in the way. He should choose. It's the God-fearing man that the Lord is willing to to instruct. We talked about what fearing the Lord meant earlier. And it is also the, uh, the God-fearing man whom the Lord will bless with his counsel. Down to verse 14. The counsel, or the, the secret, and again, counsel is another translation, a legitimate. The counsel of the Lord is what? For those who fear him. The Lord counsels those through his spirit, working as, uh, as, as we read the word. Uh, the Lord counsels us. But we have to be those who fear him. And as we look to him for the wisdom and the strength that we need to obey, we can be assured, and we are assured in this psalm, that God will instruct us in his will and direct to direct our paths. Uh, verses 8 through 10, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimony. And then the third thing that you and I uh, should pray for in addition to praying for deliverance and protection from our enemies and guidance and instruction in the way of godliness is we should pray for, it's commended to us in the psalm, for the Lord to remove the guilt of our own sins. The guilt of our own sins. The psalmist's desire to be strengthened to walk in God's way in the present that I just read of in verses 4 and 5 a moment ago, reminds him of his failure to walk consistently in those ways of the Lord, both in the recent and in the distant past. He says, after praying um, to be strengthened to walk in God's way, he says in verse um, 7, do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. 
according to thy loving kindness, remember thou me, rather than according to his sins, according to his covenant love, remember him, he says. So he is, he's reminded of his sins as he, as he's, as he prayed for God's, uh, uh, for the strength to walk in his way. He also was reminded of his sins um, as he contemplated God's righteousness. Verse 8 and verse 11, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. And then down in ver- shortly after he says, is reminded of God's goodness and his moral rectitude. He says in verse 11, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. David, the man after own, God's own heart, his iniquity was great. Not just with Bathsheba, by the way. Mine is great. Yours is great. Don't fool yourself in thinking otherwise. And pondering the righteousness and holiness of God uh, tends to make us mindful of our own lack of that very holiness and righteousness. And so too does contemplation of our afflictions. And David was contemplating his afflictions in verse 18. Look upon my affliction and my trouble. And then right after he speaks of his affliction, what does he speak about? His sins. He says, oh, and forgive my all my sins. David feels the weight of his guilt and he longs to be forgiven of the guilt of his wrongdoing. He knows that because God is good and morally upright, verse 8, that he cannot ignore David's sins any more than he can ignore your sins or mine. God doesn't ignore sins ever. On the other hand, because God is good also, he desires to forgive both the psalmist's guilt and those of all who will look to Jesus for that forgiveness. It's on the cross where this dilemma of God's need to punish sin and his desire to forgive sinners, it's on the cross of Christ that that dilemma was resolved. God's righteousness was fully vindicated as he punished Jesus for the sins committed by ourselves. Jesus did receive the justice that we deserve, and his mercy was fully displayed to those of us who are believers because we didn't get the justice, but we get the very opposite, God's forgiveness and his love forevermore and heaven. Do you have Jesus? Are you trusting in the true Jesus? Not the Mormon Jesus, not the Muslim Jesus, not the Jehovah's Witness Jesus. Those are all false Christs. Are you trusting in the biblical Jesus who is God enfleshed, who is uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived in a perfect, obedient life under God's law, his own law, never once deviated from it even slightly, and then paid the penalty that that law demanded for sin, your sin, if you trust in him and mine, and fully paid that debt that we owed. Are you trusting in that Jesus, who alone can save any 
person from God's wrath. You got to have him. You don't want to enter into eternity without Jesus as your Savior and your King. And by the way, he comes as both. He doesn't just give fire insurance so that people can live a life of godlessness. You've got to walk and say, Lord, I will live for you if you want him to forgive you of your sins. Because he is Savior and he is Lord. And that's the only way you get him for who he is as Savior and Lord. Is he your Lord? See your Lord. Well, if you feel guilty, if you feel weighed down by guilt, all you need to do is go to that Jesus that I've spoken of and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Please help me not to do it again. Please forgive me for dishonoring you, for um, being a poor witness. Please forgive me for my love of sin. And please help me to obey you now uh, consistently once again. And if you, that's for the Christian. If, you're, if you have never trusted in Jesus, you need to trust in him now because you're not guaranteed five minutes from now. You need to flee to Christ. You need to give your life to him. You need to trust him alone to save you, not in any of your works, not in your baptism, your church membership, the money you gave this morning or have ever given in the past. None of that stuff means a hill of beans when it comes to getting forgiven by God. You need Christ. You need to trust him, and he will forgive you, and you will be right with God if you flee to Jesus of Nazareth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage that speaks of our the way in which we should pray and the things about which we should pray. Thank you that it also points us to the uh, covenant uh, of whom Jesus is the head, that covenant of grace that you made with Jesus as the second Adam and uh, that you made uh, with us who are in him as his seed. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, help us to be better at praying. We pray that you would give us those of us who are struggling with a desire to even pray at all, we pray that you would give us new desires to come before you, the God of the universe, and be heard by you and find that uh, exciting. Would you please give us excitement in pray, uh, for prayer? And Lord, for those that are struggling with trusting you uh, to hear and answer their prayers, would you please give them new faith, a new ability to believe that you will answer, and even if you answer no, it's right. It's the right thing. Would you please give us all more reverence, more humility, more cognizance of your grace, more persistence, and more patience. And that as we do that, Lord, that you would honor yourself through us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Please stay for